Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to have Roz Segal on the show. Roz is endowed professor in the study of modern genocide at Stockton University, where he directs the Master of Arts in Holocaust and Genocide Studies program there. He's also the author of a terrific new book on the experience of the Holocaust uh, in the Subcarpathian Rust. The book raises important questions about the nature of ethnic violence during the Second World War, in particular about the role and nature of anti-Semitism and the relationship of violence against Jews with the broader nation-building projects of Eastern Europe. I have to say, I, I read his book, and since I finished it, I found myself turning over the ideas he, he had in his book in my mind repeatedly um, and thinking about what that means for the broader field of genocide study. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking with Roz about those ideas in person. And so, Roz, welcome, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you, and uh, thanks a lot for inviting me and for uh, uh, having me uh, on this uh, great show. And I look forward to uh, talking about uh, my work and about uh, the uh, changing field of genocide studies today. Yeah, so, Ross, before we start, uh, at least before we start talking about the book, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, 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 and why you became an academic. Yeah, so um, uh, well, I, I was born and I grew up in Israel, but I also grew up a bit in California. Um, and I, um, how I became an academic and uh, ended up where I am now at was with, I, I guess everyone is a good question. Um, uh, I had this kind of, uh, I, I would say, uh, basic but unclear interest uh, in the Holocaust, uh, probably as an Israeli. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really know anything uh, about it, and I didn't know why I'm even interested in it, really. Um, I traveled in India um, um, after the army, and when I finally decided what I want to do, I said, you know, I'll go back and I'll, I want to study the Holocaust. And that, for me at the time, seemed like something that I should do in a department of Jewish history. So I went back. I did a master's in Jewish history in Tel Aviv. University, uh, and after that, uh, I was encouraged to um, to apply and to go to the Strasser Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University, uh, where and that's uh, uh, that's actually an important part in my story, where I slowly uh, began to change because when I studied for my master's and when I began this uh, uh, journey. Um, my approach was very much rooted kind of like in, in what we call the Jerusalem School of Jewish Studies and Holocaust History. In my background as an Israeli, which really means, to boil it down, that anti-Semitism, for example, plays a major, uh, almost self-evident role in this uh, story, that Jews are really at the at the center of what we're talking about. And they, of course, are, uh, but they've become the center of what I do in a completely 
different way. And what happened at the Stressler Center is that I started to open up. I met a lot of people. It's a very dynamic place. A lot of guest lectures, a lot of conferences. Uh, my my peers, my uh, the other doctoral students uh, uh, around me who were and are incredible uh, uh, students and scholars today and teachers, uh, uh, many discussions with them. And I started to think in other ways uh, about this history, about this topic of the Holocaust, about genocide more broadly. And then what really happened, and we can maybe go into it later, is when once I set out to do my research in the archives, uh, mostly in Budapest and in the region, which in today is in Western Ukraine, and I started to deal with the archival material, I really saw that um, the way that I approached this kind of at looking basically only at Jews, right, and with anti-Semitism that seems like again, like almost self-evident as an explanatory factor, doesn't actually work with what I was finding. Um, And that I put this together with many other things that I was reading and many discussions that were going on. And uh, uh, that the result of that ultimately was this book. So um, that's kind of a a way to answer who I am professionally. (laughs) Yeah, and and you direct the um, program, in, uh, the master's program in Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Uh, maybe you can just briefly introduce that program and what you try and do there. Yeah, so uh, um, at Stockton uh, back in 1998, they set up uh, what was one of the first, if not maybe the first, uh, master's program in Holocaust and Genocide Studies in the U.S. Uh, and so it's uh, um, 20 years now. It has developed and grown uh, significantly. Uh, uh, We have um, uh, a very dynamic and diverse group of students who deal with various um, uh, instances and issues and questions in the study of genocide, mostly modern genocide and mass violence, and an equally uh, interesting and diverse group of faculty uh, uh, who work on uh, um, many important topics uh, on the Holocaust and other cases of genocide and mass violence. And uh, one of the things that we're trying to do in the program today um, and and that I'm trying to advance is to really uh, try to think about researching and teaching uh, and engaging with the public uh, about the Holocaust and genocide, not just through the kind of major genocidal events that we know about, the Holocaust, the Rwanda genocide, the Armenian genocide, which are all very important and we deal with them in the program, but trying to think about genocide and mass violence as a process, as a structure, as something that is systemic uh, in the making of the modern world, in the world around us, and we can really see this actually you know we live in a world with uh, almost 70 million displaced peoples of various kinds refugees and others right so clearly mass violence has a systemic element uh, in the world around us and that's what we're trying to do and one of the specific ways that we're trying to do it is connect connect the study of genocide to the study of uh, the making of the U.S. state and society, of major events and processes in the history of the U.S., such as slavery, obviously, but not only slavery, uh, of course, Native American genocide and other uh, processes, um, and to think about uh, uh, the making of the U.S. state and society also in broader global processes uh, and the dimensions. So we're really trying to 
connect the study of genocide also to other fields and disciplines and to draw students that maybe a few years ago were not very interested in such a program and now are starting to see connections to things that very much interest uh, them as well. Um, Black history in the U.S., uh, indigenous studies, um, and other fields. And so where, where do you, where, if, if you get a master's in arts there in, in Holocaust and genocide studies, what, what, what do your students go on to do after they're done? Yeah, well, uh, that's a, actually many of our students uh, find jobs after they uh, uh, finish the master's program. Some of them go on uh, to do um, additional graduate uh, degrees, including uh, PhDs. Some of them go into work. We have uh, uh, people who work in museums, um, uh, in the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York, and, and in other smaller museums, we just have a student, uh, Amanda Solomon, who uh, just received Received a great position. She's actually still writing her thesis, but has just uh, um, received and accepted a position in uh, the Portland uh, um, Museum of Jewish History and Holocaust History in Oregon. Uh, so museums, um, some work with various organizations on uh, that deal with mass violence or related issues, human rights, uh, hunger, refugees. Uh, um, so these kinds of uh, employment opportunities, uh, some work with Jewish organizations of various kinds. We have a lot of we have a lot of internship programs that we offer our students to help them get a foot in the door uh, in these kind of organizations. And then these organizations many times have relations with one another. So that's a way to help them uh, move forward uh, once they graduate. And in some cases, as I just said, also while they're in the program. So it's a, it sounds like a great program. Um, let's let's turn to the book. And I guess my first question maybe maybe is an obvious one. Why did you decide to look at this small region of Europe as the focus for your research? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so um, I was a, as I said, I was a master's student in Tel Aviv University. Um, and uh, Professor Yuda Bauer, uh, who was uh, you know, the founder of Holocaust studies in a way in Israel and Jerusalem and one of the major figures in Holocaust scholarship around the world, and uh, um, he still is in some ways. Uh, he came to give, he was already retired, of course, he came to give a special seminar in Tel Aviv University, and um, <clears throat> and I decided, you know, that I, I uh, uh, managed to get into that uh, seminar, um, and, uh, and I was very much inspired by, uh, by Professor Bauer, and um, when the time came to write uh, the paper for that MA seminar, Professor Bauer was then working on his project on East, the eastern uh, Polish areas, uh, the shtetls, the small towns in eastern Poland, and uh, and their destruction during World World War II. But not only their destruction, basically their history, and then their destruction that came out eventually as his book, Death of the Shtetl. But he was working on that research at the time, and we talked about it in the seminar. And I was very inspired by that. And when the time came to write a paper. We talked, Professor Bauer and me, and I said, you know, I also want to write a paper about a small town in Eastern Europe. And, you know, as I said, I actually knew very little. I actually really, really almost nothing uh, about this history. 
Um, um, so he was quite amused from that. And he said, well, do you have any idea about a focus where in Eastern Europe something? Um, and at the time, a book had come out by Ilana Rosen, who's a literary scholar at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev uh, in Israel. And she's moved on since then to deal with other things, but other issues, but a, a very good scholar. And she wrote a book on uh, oral histories of Jews from the Carpathian, Mount, from the Carpathian region. And it uh, had just come out, and I saw it. Um, and I was intrigued because, actually, I had never heard before about the Carpathian region. So, so I thought, no, really. And I, and I thought, okay, so that, here's a good opportunity. You know, I'll, I'll, you know I'll, um, I'll learn something new. This is what I'm here for, after all, right? So I said, maybe I'll deal with the town in the Carpathian region, which really, I mean... Uh, amused him greatly then, right? Um, so he said, you know what? All right. And then he suggested a small town, Hust, um, on the eastern part of the region. And that kind of set me on that journey. I wrote a paper on Hust, um, uh, which was not very good, but it impressed uh, Professor Bauer uh, uh, to the extent that he said, you know, why don't you consider a master's uh, on a major Jewish center of that region, uh, uh, Munkach, Um and uh, then I did that. I wrote uh, my master's on the Munkach uh, Jewish community before and during the Holocaust. Uh, and he was my advisor, Professor uh, Bauer. Um, uh, and then, as I said, I, I was encouraged uh, also by him and by others to pursue a PhD. Um, and uh, one of the places was the Stressor Center. And that's where eventually I went and uh, as I had just explained, as I just explained, you know, my my thinking, my understanding of this history uh, developed and eventually changed uh, considerably. So, I mean, just just one more thing. I mean, in a way, it's like you know, I began from this kind of interest that was inspired by him, and eventually wrote local studies and then a regional study. But from there, it kind of opened to one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book, and not only me, others as well, thinking about local and regional histories, the kind of uh, broad and even global issues that you can address by looking that's, at the small that's scale. That's a great story. And I have to say, I'm, I'm, surpri- I'm no longer surprised, but I was initially surprised as I started this, this project of interviews at how many people had stories like yours, where the book emerges out of not happenstance, but unexpectedly um, and fortuitously rather than in some kind of linear pre-planned career path. I think that's the way it happens most. Um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I want to add one more, if, if I may, one more point about this, which is actually very crucial in this the story of my professional and personal development and my journey uh, here is that as you said, the book developed, and but it was, you know, and I changed. But really, the person who was at the center of allowing, of facilitating this change and guiding me in the process was my advisor at the Stressor Center, Professor DeBoard Work, who was uh, the founding director of the Stressor Center. Um, and uh, and when I arrived, I mean, when I arrived at the Stressor Center in 2007, I really had like a very clear idea of what I wanted to do. Uh, she already saw a lot of the problems with what I wanted to do, but but, but she she's a she's really an outstanding uh, uh, teacher and a, an amazing uh, advisor and a great scholar, uh, and she really guided me um, 
in this process of opening up, of learning, of asking new kinds of questions, of looking in new kind of ways. And really this, you know, my, I, I owe uh, the majority of my professional development and this book to her guidance uh, and support. So it's important to, to say that uh, professionally and personally. So for people who don't know, where is the Subcarpathian Rust? And in, in, in 1900 or in the late 19th century, who lived there? Yeah, so the um, the Carpathian region, we can just say the Carpathian region if we want. It'll be, yeah, it'll simplify the, um, so the region um, uh, from the late uh, 19th century, uh, um, it was in the kind of far northeastern uh, corner of the Hungarian part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, right? Um, it's a um, just briefly. Uh, um, it was it was part of the Hungarian part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire until World War One, uh, when uh, the empire, of course, was defeated and disintegrated. Uh, the region became part of the new state uh, of Czechoslovakia in the 1920s and 1930s. And then uh, Hungary occupied uh, the region uh, in the late in late 1938 and early 1939. And it remained under Hungarian uh, rule and occupation during World War II until uh, October 1944, when uh, the Soviet uh, army occupied the region. It thereafter became part of Soviet Ukraine until the fall of um, the communist bloc, uh, uh, where it turned part, it turned into a part of independent Ukraine um, and the western part of Ukraine, where it, which is uh, uh, where it is today. Um, in terms of the society there, so it's a very diverse, multi- um, ethnic and multi-religious region. It still is to some extent. It was more at the time, which means that it had a population uh, uh, which was made up of a majority of Carpathian-Ruthenians, which is the um, majority East Slavic group in the region. We don't have enough time to go into talking about Carpathian-Ruthenians. There is... um, debate in Slavic uh, studies, uh, um, which overlaps to some extent with various nationalistic debates, uh, um, um, as is common uh, in these kind of cases. But there there are East Slavic uh, group. Um, uh, That's the majority Slavic group. The the region included also uh, Jews, uh, ethnic Hungarians, um, uh, Roma, uh, uh, um, an interesting ethnic German population, uh, Kapatendeutschen, uh, and during the 1920s also uh, Czechs uh, uh, came to live in the region, the ones who were sent from Prague as part of the Czechoslovak administration, and they brought their families. Um, uh, and then on the eastern edges of the region, we also have, uh, we also have a Romanian population, um, so it was a very, very diverse region, um, and this diversity is, as a whole was actually what came under attack uh, under Hungarian occupation during uh, World War II, in addition to, the, of course, the, tar- the targeted assaults against each of the groups themselves. 
and primarily the Jews, but uh, but diversity in itself was kind of like the threat uh, for uh, the Hungarian authorities. And again, we might talk about this a bit more, but that's like really on the tip of the fork uh, about the region. So you've used kind of traditional national or ethnic labels um, as you describe the region and its peoples. Did, did the people who lived there in I don't know, the mid-1800s, did they think of themselves using national categories or, or, or was that national category important to them or how did that work? Yeah, that's a good, that's a very good question. And um, uh, so the, one of the arguments that, uh, that I make in the book is that uh, the reason the region to some extent and in various ways the life in the region happened across uh, ethnic and religious uh, uh, categories that imply separation and boundaries in the way that we uh, imagine them uh, you 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 talk about national categories that are yet another thing right uh, I'm, I'm referring here to ethnic and uh, yeah religious uh, categories. So when I say Jews, right, I'm not uh, talking, you know, today we might understand this almost again, self-evidently also as a national category, right? Uh, But I'm referring to it here as uh, actually primarily uh, religious or maybe a religious and ethnic, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, for example. And one of the things that I talk about in, uh, in the book, in the first chapter, is the ways in which actually Jews and the majority Carpathian-Ruthenian population in the region uh, uh, lived. I mean, it was very clear that Jews were Jews and Carpathian-Ruthenians were uh, uh, Orthodox, Christian Orthodox or uh, Greek Catholics uh, in some cases, and there was a conflict going on internally there. But, uh, but on the other hand, so there were clear kind of religious boundaries, right, in that sense. But in many ways, we have very interesting, uh, a very interesting shared life that uh, uh, in the region. And one of the most interesting, I mean, it's shared in the sense that they lived uh, um, um, together in, in, the, in these, certainly in these small villages across the region, but also in the larger towns, uh, Jews and non-Jews lived uh, uh, really together, one next to each other, uh, uh, even though there were, of course, also uh, areas where there were concentrations of Jews, but Jews tended to live with non-Jews uh, together, uh, but also in the religious sphere, and that's the most, that's really an interesting uh, aspect, um, uh, uh, the belief in uh, uh, and the powers of nature, in the powers of religious leaders, uh, uh, um, the quote-unquote miracle-working rabbis in the region, the Hasidic uh, uh, um, uh, leaders in the region, Hasidism, uh, Hasidic Judaism was very uh, strong in the Carpathian region. This is one of the areas where Hasidism actually emerged, uh, and it has to do in no small part to uh, the the way that uh, Jews and non-Jews in those areas uh, thought about the mountains and the forest and the, the kind of uh, supernatural or, uh, uh, powers uh, of the area. And therefore, they also uh, um, shared a belief, for example, in the powers of their 
of the religious leaders, right? It could be the sorcerers for the non-Jews or the, again, the miracle working, quote unquote, rabbis for the Jews. But what we see also is that each used the, uh, the powers of the other's leaders, uh, if need be, right? So uh, uh, Jews uh, had no problem uh, to consult and to use the services uh, um, of non-Jewish sorcerers, and non-Jews uh, uh, um, had no problem to use the, the, the you know, the powers uh, of uh, uh, Jewish uh, miracle-working rabbis, uh, and they respected each other's powers. Right? Again, there was clear divisions about. Uh, uh, religion uh, boundaries, uh, but there was a lot of shared life in that sense, right? Even even in those kind of religious or semi-religious uh, uh, spheres, and certainly in terms of living together, there's also, as I write in the book and as others have written before me, um, a large group of Jews in the region, uh, uh, more than uh, Jews in other places in, in Europe and in Eastern Europe, were actually farmers. They worked in the field, so they worked in the field with, uh, l- like their Carpathian neighbors, right? So there's also this point of uh, similarity and shared experiences of the uh, hardships uh, that they that entailed in daily life. So, so the full title of the book is "Genocide in the Carpathians: War, Social Breakdown, and Mass Violence, 1914 to 1945." Why is 1914 the logical starting point for this story? Yeah, well, um, I wanted to. There, it, it's it's always a, a problem, right? Where do you begin to tell a story, and where you end, and where you end, right? I mean, it's and there's, I mean, there's no good solutions in a, in that sense. That there's always there will always be a problem, right? Uh, you could have started elsewhere and it would have made sense and you could have ended uh, uh, further in time and that would have made sense. Um, I I wanted to basically, obviously I wanted to include uh, some discussion of World War I, but very little, as you can see in the book. Um, And that first chapter actually, which I just uh, uh, talked about, uh, um, traces kind of like the life in the region and some of its element, particularly this uh, uh, shared life, uh, uh, specifically of Jews and their Carpathian neighbors before World War One, throughout the 19th century. So in a way, I don't just begin abruptly kind of like in 1914. Uh, but I did want to uh, talk about uh, also the experience of World War One. Um and the massive uh, uh, destruction and dislocation experienced by people in the region uh, during World War I, uh, which really set the stage then for the incorporation of the region into the, the, the defeat of the Austro-Hungarian Empire of Hungary within that, uh, and Hungary lost, therefore, in the Trianon Treaty of June 1920, all of its multi-ethnic and multi-religious uh, uh, borderland, including the Carpathian region. So this set the stage for the incorporation of the region after the war to the new state of Czechoslovakia. Um, and, and the 20s and 30s then were crucial in the transformation of the relations between Jews and Carpathian-Ruthenians, right? So if we have what I just uh, described and explained, uh, uh, relations between Jews and their 
Carpathia Ruthenia neighbors, these undergo significant changes under Czechoslovak rule uh, in the 1920s and 30s, which are very important to understand what happens during World War uh, II. So that's so I wanted to have that, uh, in a sense, kind of typical World War I interwar, right, 1920s, 1930s, and World War II. Uh, period, but I but I really do also begin before uh, uh, to kind of set the stage for tracing how the relations between Jews um, and Carpathia Ruthenian change, why they change, how they change. Um, that sets the stage for me to discuss my the concept of anti-Semitism um, and what. Thinking about this particular case study of Jews and Carpathian Ruthenians might tell us more broadly about thinking about the relations between Jews and non-Jews in Europe before and during uh, World War II, right? So again, from the kind of regional to the broader question here. Yeah, that that actually leads nicely into that next question I had, because I was going to ask this, this, you talk in this chapter about the period of Czechoslovak rule, about about the role of anti-Semitism and the nature of the term anti-Semitism. So maybe you could say a little bit about your understanding of the term anti-Semitism and how that term has been used and what your study says about the way we should think about anti-Semitism. Yeah, so uh, I mean, here I'm. Here I was uh, inspired by the work of Professor David Engel at NYU, uh, who wrote almost uh, a decade ago, uh, really a, a, a groundbreaking article um, on the concept of anti-Semitism. So this is not. I mean, the 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 basic critique uh, that uh, Professor Engel develops there about. Uh, um, how we misunderstand this concept, how we misuse it, and how, in essence, we should actually stop using it in scholarship, right? That, that's his work. Uh, um, and, I, I mean, in a nutshell, I don't want to go into uh, discussion about uh, uh, that article, but in a nutshell, uh, uh, what uh, Professor Engel says is that um, uh, anti-Semitism emerged in a very, the, the term emerged in a very specific concept, context in Germany in the last third of the 19th century among a group of people, non-Jewish Germans, who identified themselves with anti-Semitism and had a very clear goal of reversing Jewish emancipation in Germany, right? It, there, then it spread from that context. And the problem is that today we use the term, when we use the term anti-Semitism, we assume that everybody knows what we're talking about, but actually it's become so general that it applies to everything from uh, ancient Egypt to current critique of the state of Israel, uh, of Israeli policies, um, in a way, and that it seems to provide, uh, again, a kind of almost self-evident explanation for so many different kinds of phenomena, processes, instances, relation, human relationships that, like any analytical term that aspires to ex- describe and explain so much, anti-Semitism, too, as a concept, ends up actually blurring much more than explaining. 
right? Um, it also has various assumptions. For example, when we think about anti-Semitism today, almost intuitively, we think, for example, about hatred, hatred of Jews, right? But why do we assume hatred necessarily as an emotion, right? It could be disgust. It could be resentment. It could be fear. We know that fear, for example, is one of the most powerful human emotions, right? Uh, and it's very important in, anti- in thinking about what we call anti-Semitism as well. But all these kind of questions about specific emotions, specific relations, specific policies, isn't there a difference between uh, 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 um, uh, various forms of discriminations to, uh, to deportations, to mass murder, right? There's significant differences there that we need to think about uh, uh, that are completely blurred by the general concept of anti-Semitism, which furthermore has become unbelievably politicized, right? It's basically today in various ways, and we really don't have time to go into this uh, here, uh, has become really a political tool. And it's very difficult to separate these two. So when we say anti-Semitism, it comes with also a political baggage of sorts that further clouds analytical clarity. During the 20s and 30s, how how does the period of Czech, Czechoslovak rule affect the way in which Jews interact with the other populations in the in the, in the Carpathians? Yeah, so so one of the things that I that I offer um, in my analysis of the relations between Jews and non-Jews in the Carpathian region is a number of elements here. First, I argue and I show that. We don't actually have a history of what we might call right ancient hatred or long-standing uh, uh, animosity, even of any sort, right? Between not that there weren't cases of say religious animosity, there were, there were, right? But as a widespread, deeply rooted phenomena, no, right? In the history of relations between Jews and their Carpathian neighbors, again, this doesn't this is this doesn't mean that we're talking about some kind of an ideal past that we miss in a kind of a nostalgic way, right? It's just about thinking, realizing that we have a different kind of history here uh, uh, about the relations between Jews uh, and non-Jews. And that also doesn't mean that, like in any kind of human interactions, there were good interactions, bad interactions, uh, um, more more tense, less tense. But but the idea that anti-Semitism is kind of like a long-term factor that might help us explain what happened between Jews and non-Jews during World War II under Hungarian occupation, it, there, there's not, nothing of that, right, in that longer history before World War I. And then when we, the, the second element is when I come to the 1920s and 30s, and I show something uh, uh, very interesting here that Czechoslovak policies uh, um, uh, created uh, basically an unintended, unintended crisis of loyalty and between Jews and their Carpathian neighbors at a time when we see the rise of nationalist discourses among Carpathianians, right, where various kinds of people, uh, leaders, try to argue that Carpathianians, for example, are really Ukrainians, right, so Ukrainian national narratives, uh, or Carpathianians are really Russians, right, or Carpathianians are really a, a, a national group of their own, right, Just not just an East Slavic ethnic group, but a national group 
of their own. So we have these kinds of emergence of national narratives in the 1920s, 30s, in conjunction with Czech policies. And what were these Czech, Czechoslovak policies? Uh, basically, what we have is the Czechs sent people to the region to rule it, uh, very similar in, in some respects to a colonial administration, right? And they brought their families with them, and for their families, and specifically for their children, they opened Czech, school, Czech schools, right? Schools in a Czech language. Now, Jews overwhelmingly decided to send their children to Czech schools for the main reason that they wanted their children to have language skills in the language of the state, right? Uh, that seemed to them like, uh, uh, um, you know, a good, a good possibility, a good possibility for the future of their children. So the most of the people, most of the children in those schools were children of the Czech administrators and then Jews, right? And in some cases, really in these small towns and villages, we have, you know, two or three Czech, Czech, Czech children and then 15 Jews, right, in those, in those Czech schools. What that meant is that Jews turned their back, or that's how it was perceived by Carpathian-Ruthenian leaders and Carpathian-Ruthenian national leaders. They turned their back on Carpathian-Ruthenian schools at the same time that the Czechoslovak state, this Czech colonial administration, was actually not keeping up its promise to the Carpathian-Ruthenians of granting them cultural autonomy in the region. Right? So there was this promise after World War I. So at the same time, it was not keeping that promise. There was no cultural autonomy forthcoming or any kind of autonomy forthcoming. There was a rise in nationalist discourses among Carpathian-Ruthenians. And then there was the schools. And how Carpathian-Ruthenian leaders perceived this is that Jews are actually siding with a state that is now betraying them and therefore Jews are betraying them as well. So this is what I call an unintended crisis of loyalty. It's not rooted in any ancient hatreds. It actually offers us a way to think about the specific dynamics of, of the breakdown of relations between groups where hatred is actually not very strong. Actually, resentment is a much more stronger uh, emotion at work here. Uh, and it has a political dimension. It, it involves looking at uh, broad contexts, right? There are a number of contexts involved here that we need to take into consideration, and some of them have nothing to do with Jews or Jewish history or the relations between Jews and Carpathian-Ruthenians, for that matter. Um, so it, it, it basically what it does is it offers a concrete, specific, contextualized account of relations between Jews and non-Jews, right? And in a way, this is Professor Engel suggested that it uh, that you know he always says that he wrote a number of books about the Holocaust or about the w- war period, World War II period, and he never uses the word anti-Semitism. He says, I, "I just write what I want to write, right?" And that's what we should do instead of without our analysis, we should actually lay out what we're talking about specifically, right? So it's kind of like the bread and butter of historical research, place and time and specifics matter, context, right? So and the chronology here is a little complicated, but but Hungar- Hungary, I guess I'll just say kind of a simple colloquial takes over, uh, which glosses over a lot. But what what role does the 
Carpathian region play in the Hungarian visions of the future? And, and where does this vision come from? Why, why is that vision so important? Right. So here we actually come to, the, to another important point, and really the heart of the matter, uh, I think, um, about the role, basically the role of the nation state in the violence of the Holocaust. Right. And I want to emphasize this because I think that's very uh, important. A lot of the dynamics uh, of the violence uh, against Jews and against non-Jews. And one of the things that we that we're still not looking at enough is the relationships between violence against Jews and violence against other groups, uh, uh, Nazi violence, but also a lot of other kinds of violence, specifically in Southeast Europe, specifically in places like Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, in Axis states, states that were allied with Nazi Germany but remained independent uh, throughout the war or for large parts of the war, like in Hungary. Um, We don't really pay attention to the role of the nation state, to this, to the to the nation state system, which is a very new phenomenon in human affairs, right? It's a phenomenon of the last 150 years. It's a very 20th century uh, history, and one of the, I mean, we really need to think that uh, one of the questions when we ask about the Holocaust, if we want to be kind of broadly con- contextual, right? Then we ask, why did the Holocaust actually happen in the 20 in the middle of the 20th century at the heart of Europe, right? And one, we, we can obviously answer this basic question in various ways, but one of them also has to do with the nation state, with the rise and crystallization of the nation state. And in the case, and here in this case, and this is one of the arguments I may make, um, we tend to portray the Holocaust in Hungary primarily as something that begins in March 1944 when the Germans invade Hungary. And the Germans invade Hungary in this late stage in the war to prevent it from changing side. The uh, uh, the Nazis know that the Hungarians are trying to reach out to the Allies in order to change sides, which the Romanians, by the way, do uh, um, uh, uh, later on. Um, and the, the invasion is meant to prevent that and also to harness the Hungarian economy to the war to the uh, war efforts. Uh, and uh, we. Th- after the German invasion, we, of course, have the rapid ghettoization and deportations of Jews from all of Hungary, including the Carpathian region, uh, primarily to Auschwitz. 430,000 people were uh, uh, 75, 80 percent are guests upon arrival. Um, um, that's how we usually talk about the Holocaust in Hungary. The Holocaust in Hungary is also commemorated according to uh, this uh, spring and early summer mass ghettoization and deportation, 1944, right? Um, and one of the things that it does is that it really attaches this to uh, to make it a, mostly a part of not Nazi history and Nazi history during the war and the Nazi genocidal assault against Jews, which is definitely true, right? But it's only it's actually part of the truth. It's not the whole truth, right? And in order to actually understand, right, how the deportations in the spring and early summer of 1944 were so successful and so fast, right, uh, we really need to understand the Hungarian history of this, right? And the Hungarian history, the Romanian history, the Bulgarian history, these are usually sidelined, right? They're marginalized. Um, and, um, And this is 
this is really a major point that I want to make about also how we remember and how we teach the Holocaust is primarily a Nazi history, which intentionally or not, then one of the results is that we overlook the primary, the central, the crucial role of the nation state, of state authorities um, in in this violence. And we actually don't exactly understand everything that goes on because when we overlook the role of the nation state and state authorities, we also miss all the connections between the violence against Jews and the violence against other groups, which if we look at this broadly like this, really sheds light then back on the particular victimization of the Jews. So let me let me just let me just say I just want to emphasize this point and then we, you can you can move forward that that I really want to emphasize that uh, of course the Holocaust in Hungary is a major part of uh, uh, the history of Nazism during World War II the Nazi genocidal assault against Jews specifically during World War II but it's only part of the story right and when we when we emphasize when we're actually looking almost only at the nazi part we miss the the hungarian history in this and we miss the hungarian policies in this and we miss the visions of the hungarian nation state and how they turned into policies and were implemented uh in various twists and turns during world war ii uh all this we actually miss and therefore we actually only get part of the story and therefore a, a problematic story in that sense. That's part of the argument that I wanna that I wanna make. We're not looking at the whole story, right? Yeah. So 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 let's look a little bit more closely at the Hungarian story. So so before um, 1944, how how do Hungarians try and create a greater Hungary in the Carpathians in this period from say 1940 to 1944? Right. So, I mean, I think that, again, we need to understand that uh, the, the, vision, the vision of the Hungarian nation state as the vision of, uh, of other nation states, the Romanian, uh, the comparison with Romania is, I think, especially enlightening, but also with Bulgaria. Uh, but the, the vision is to create um, a large, greater Hungary um, ethno-nation state that is with a marked ethno- ethnic Hungarian majority right so there's uh so in that sense that's why i said at the beginning that the primary problem quote unquote for uh this vision is diversity in itself the diverse ethnic and religious character of these border regions that hungary had lost after world war one and then had occupied them in various stages during world war uh two including the Carpathian region. And therefore, we need to understand the links between the assaults against the different groups in those regions and against, particularly against Jews, uh, Roma, and Carpathian Ruthenians in the Carpathian, Carpathian region uh, from 1938, actually, until 1944, right? So it's not just from 1940, it's since right from when the Hungarians occupy the region. Now, uh, the main instance that I discuss uh, uh, in, in the chapter on the Hungarian occupation is the mass deportations in summer 1941 um, against that against Jews and Roma, but that also in its planning stages targeted uh, Carpathian Ruthenians. Uh, but in order to answer your question more broadly, the Hungarians, like many other state authorities uh, throughout the 20th century, uh, carried out various kinds of measures and assaults against unwanted 
uh, groups of various kinds in according to windows of opportunities, right? When there was a window of opportunity in summer 1941, a very specific one that had to do with the German and its allies' invasion of the Soviet Union, then mass deportations could be pursued. When there are not not this kind of window of of opportunity or when it closed in mid-August 1941, then other kinds of assaults, which included arrest, torture, mass robbery, various forms of discrimination, and other kinds of measures like change of place names, uh, uh, even uh, uh, in order to further this uh, uh, vision um, and goal. And this is very typical. State authorities throughout the 20th century uh, conduct assaults against unwanted uh, group of various sorts, right, in different ways, according to Windows of Opportunity, where the rational, and that's where we come back to the Carpathian region, the rational is these unwanted groups essentially don't belong in that place, even if they had lived there for generations, right? So the, in a way, the, the idea of the nation state, right, then what the nation state does in these instances is it recasts and redefines belonging to place essentially, right? You no more are belonging, right? You no more have the right to be, to live in a place where you might have had lived for generations and you can trace your life back really generations, grandparents and grandparents and grandparents and so on, right? So, uh, um, and, and so kind of essential foreignness, right? People become in the view of this, of this new state system essentially foreign and in some cases, uh, uh, like Carpathian-Ruthenians, for example, also security threats. People who are potentially rebellious against the, the state, who might uh, 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 actually align with enemies of the state, real enemies in times of war, right? Carpathian-Ruthenians with Ukrainian nationalists, for example. Uh, uh, so this idea of security threats, essential foreignness, right, is very, very, is, is, is really a major motive of state violence in the 20th century, you can say, and we can also see it at work in the Hungarian a case during World War II, also in its violence against Jews. And I want to, you know, it's important to, to, to note the major uh, goal of state, Hungarian state violence was to get people out of this greater Hungarian uh, area, right? Not to, I mean, it wasn't mass murder. It wasn't systematic mass murder. It was the ultimate goal was to get people out, Right. And here, one last comment about that uh, is here we see the intersection of Hungarian mass violence and Nazi mass murder. And it's 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 important uh, to 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 note that this intersection worked very well in the spring and early summer of 1944 after the Germans come in. Right. The Hungarians had another window of opportunity they could harness all the state authorities. And this was a Hungarian state project. It's important to say the Hungarian, the German authorities who came in after March 44, who oversaw the deportations was Adolf Eichmann's Sondereinsatzkommando, his team of 200 people, which included drivers and secretaries and everything. In the Carpathian region, we have 40 SS men, right? There is no example in history where 40 people manage the deportation of 100,000 people within weeks, right? This is a Hungarian state project with the Hungarian gendarmerie police, mayors, the interior ministry, where we have a thorough and systematic process of mass robbery that takes place at the same time, which is, again, very common, right? So at the time, 
the Hungarian aim and the German uh, uh, genocidal aim of murdering Jews uh, intersected very well. But it's important to also say that in summer 1941, when the Hungarian state was deporting thousands of people, 20,000 Jews actually, and several hundred Roma across the Carpathian Mountains into East Galicia, the the force that stopped these deportations after a month from mid-July to mid-August 1941 were the Germans on the other side of the Carpathian Mountains. And if you'll allow me just two more minutes, I'll explain why. And this is this is important because the Germans at the time, together with their allies, including Hungary, were fast advancing in their campaign against the Soviet Union from 22nd of June 1941. And they were engaged in the first phase of systematic mass murder of Jews, which at the time was only targeting Soviet Jews. And why was it target Soviet Jews? Because Soviet Jews were seen by the Nazis as an integral part of the Soviet state. The goal was to destroy the Soviet state and therefore to destroy anyone associated with the Soviet state. Jews were central in this vision and therefore they were targeted for destruction. This means that the Nazis took seriously their image that Jews behind advancing German military units were a real security threat. They were Soviet state agents behind enemy lines, all of them, all Jews, right? That's why they stopped the deportations. They were engaged in murdering Soviet Jews, not all Jews within their reach yet. We, we have some time until we get to that stage and the development of what we call, what they called the final solution, right? In summer 41, it was Soviet Jews. So the last thing they wanted actually was more Jews, behind German advancing military units. And therefore, they stopped the deportations, right? So in summer 1941, there's actually the the Nazi policies and Hungarian policies are actually in contradiction. And the Nazis paradoxically stop uh, uh, Hungarian mass violence in this case, right? So there are, what I'm saying here is that there are twists and turns Unexpected twists and turns, and some in some cases twists and turns that might surprise us, and should raise questions for us to think about this history in ways that are happening in the last uh, several years in the field, but but uh, should continue onwards, right? We should actually uh, focus more on these kinds of regional and local history of these kind of twists and turns, and how major concepts like anti-Semitism, but other also frame how we think, how we study, how we teach the Holocaust in ways where we encounter some questions that we can't answer anymore within the frames that we have. One of the conceptual categories you talk about in this book uh, among Holocaust and genocide studies is this kind of traditional division into perpetrators and bystanders and and victims. Um, And you have this, you you suggest that we need to rethink how we see bystanders. So, So can you talk about that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the the best way to answer this is really to think of, of again, what do these concepts do? And I, I just want to suggest generally that the con- that there are a number of central concepts in Holocaust studies and also in genocide studies that really frame how we look at this history, almost the assumptions that we go with them into looking in this history, right? And it's not only perpetrators, victims, bystanders, and anti-Semitism, it's also rescuers and collaboration and various other concepts uh, 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 that that we could think about, right? But by this idea of bystanders, what we usually have, and think about it, that one of the 
in our memory culture of the Holocaust, actually bystanders plays a huge role in memory culture and in Holocaust educations, because one of the dictums that we have in this memory culture, and it appears in something in conference titles and in memorial events and commemoration, and is never be a bystander, right? Never be a bystander. This is a major dictum in Holocaust education, uh, um, and we, and in many cases, this is what students are taught, right? Never be a bystander. But the problem, like in the case of anti-Semitism, is that a this is utterly simplistic because we actually don't. It's utterly simplistic because it's completely generalized. It's completely disembedded from any kind of historical circumstances and context, right? Specific context, as if bystanders everywhere, right? Are, are actually the same, right? So it, it really kind of blurs completely all these various kinds of dynamics that we have of societies that face state assaults, right? And of course, it also does another thing, this division, is that it blurs us to the ways in which people don't remain in the categories that we assign them when we try to make sense of reality, right? And we know this. This is a clear ins- This is a very well-known insight, right? Perpetrators become victims. People who rescue Jews during the war end up murdering them uh, during the war for various kinds of reason. We, the lens that we have when we frame this, right, is a very moralistic frame, right? Never be a bystander is never be the bad guys of bystanders how we perceive them, right? Be the good guys. Be the person who saves uh, their neighbors, not the person who watches as their neighbors are butchered on the street, and certainly not the person who joins the uh, the ones butchering their neighbors on the street. Now, the problem... Uh, uh, so, right, so this, it's a very moralistic view that kind of elides the, con- the, the context, the specific and very different context, right? It's very different. The experience of bystanders, to give you a sense, in Amsterdam, right, is so very different than the experience of bystanders uh, uh, in many places in Eastern Europe where we have mass violence unfolding on the street, right, where you can literally see from your window mass murder on the street where neighbors attack each other, right? That doesn't happen in Amsterdam or in Hamburg, to take another example, right? Very different kind of uh, context. We blur all of that when we use this kind of general concept bystander. But the the one thing that I suggest in the book and uh, that I also pursue further uh, in my current project now is how we, again, what we do is we focus our lens only on Jews and bystanders appear in the story only when non-Jews, right, happen to uh, 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 watch or listen violence against Jews, right? So one of the things that the bystanders and also collaborators are very decontextualized. They pop up in our story sometimes and then disappear only when they happen to be watching or listening to violence against Jews. We usually know very little about them, Right who they are, what were the previous relations, right? So this kind of, again, universal bad guy image, right? Don't be that kind of bad guy. And just to make clear, I'm I'm not saying that there were no heroes and that saving people is not important. uh, But when we try to educate, right, and we want want to instill in students a sense of this history that would uh, make them think about the world around them, right, then kind of giving them general categories that really mean nothing because they're so disembedded, right, it is not helpful for our aim, right? And so back to the back to the 
Carpathian region, what I suggest is that actually when we, if we want to look at Carpathian Ruthenian bystanders to the uh, uh, mass de- ghettoization and deportations of Jews in the Carpathian region in spring and summer 1944, right, where we do have Carpathians looking and even cheering in some cases and listening to violence against Jews in some cases on the streets of the towns and villages across the region, we have to look at the whole history of the region during World War II, where we also find cases very early in the history of the region where actually Jews were watching and listening to the same uh, state authorities, the same Hungarian authorities attacking their Carpathian-Ruthenian neighbors. And this is one of the things that I found out in my research, and it actually comes up in testimonies of Jews, right? So testimonies of Jews and, and a, in, a, in a systematic way, so not in one or two, but in actually in most of the testimonies I, I've, I've listened to and I've watched, right, they raise a certain instance uh, in March 1939, when the Hungarians occupy most of the region, and there are small-scale massacres of Carpathian-Ruthenians, and Jews watch and listen. Uh, um, uh, they see this and they talk about this in their testimonies. And what was particularly interesting for me and revealing is that they actually talk about themselves as bystanders, of course, without using the term, right? But they talk about them. They really describe the bystander position as it were, right? And one of the things that I suggest to do in the book and I do further in my current project is I say, if we want to understand really what is a bystander, or in other ways, what is the experience of a society that faces a state assault of this kind, where the state assaults different groups in different times, right, but also has a coordinated attack against the region as a whole. It's not only Jews or Capetian, Ruthenians or Roma, right? It's actually the diverse uh, uh, ethnic and religious character of the region that is under attack ultimately. What is the experience of people in this kind of a society? And what, is it, what does it mean to watch and listen to this violence, Jews listening to this violence in 1938, and then Carpathian listening to this violence in 1944, to different kinds of violence, but related, right? So I'm looking at the links and the connection and the relations in order to understand both the state policy, but also how people in the region reacted to this policy, right? And for that, a disembedded view where we're only looking at non-Jews looking or listening to or participating in violence against Jews is just not enough. It doesn't tell us actually what is this, how how does a society respond to an attack against it? And in this case, we have actually, uh, we don't have communal violence. We don't have Jews. people attacking their neighbors and butchering them. But we have a lot of, indeed, bystanding. One of the things that I that I argue in the book is that by looking at this broadly, both instances of bystanding and the relations between the violence against the different groups and how groups understood this violence, we gain a much more complex, uh, more nuanced, uh, uh, um, and truer, actually, picture Right of what was the experience of this violence, how people understood it, right, how they responded to it, and what, and then with this complex picture in mind, right, which is not necessarily rooted in kind of an ancient anti-hatred of anti-Semitism, right, but in dynamics of relations between groups that break up, as I said, unintentional, unexpectedly, right, with this complex picture, now the goal would be, right, how do we 
how do we transfer this in education to students? What does this mean about what bystanders are? What does this mean about what we might be able to do or not to do or understand ourselves in the world as bystanders, right? Not only when, when we're actually facing this kind of major state assault, but well way earlier, right, uh, uh, in the process. So that, that's one of the things that I do with the concept of bystanders that are related to my critique of the concept of anti-Semitism and to the broad analysis that I suggest about the region. Well, there's way more to talk about in the book, um, but we don't really have time to do that. Um, so I guess I'd like to shift now to the, the, the final two questions I always ask. Uh, and one of them is... I. Um, is a simple one. Is there a book or two or a documentary or something you can suggest for the listeners that, that was meaningful to you while you were writing this book that you think that, that listeners should go read or watch? Well, um, you know, I, there are a number of things. Um, I, I think it's important for this kind of question to, to mention that you know, I wrote this book uh, in, in a way w- within a development in the scholarship of uh, scholarship on uh, regional and local uh, case studies uh, during World War II. And I'm referring specifically here to Holly Case's book, Between States, on the neighboring region of Transylvania that she published in 2009. She just came out with a new book uh, uh, now, but that book, Between States, was was very influential uh, for me, where it's important to say the book is not about the Holocaust, right? The book is about the conflict between Hungary and Romania and Hungarian and Romanian nationalists uh, in the last 150 years over Transylvania, this key region in the view of both nationalists, right? And what's interesting is that how this history, right, of national conflict, of territorial conflict, uh, of state conflict, how the Holocaust in Transylvania, right, is situated within this broader history, right? So this move to contextualize uh, uh, the Holocaust in Transylvania, what we would call the Holocaust in Transylvania, right, or what we might say the persecution and destruction of Jews in Transylvania during World War II within this broader modern history where the state and uh, state authorities and nationalists are actually at the center of the narrative, right? And then, uh, uh, and then it's also important to, uh, to mention a book like uh, Emily Grebel's book on Sarajevo from 2011, um, Sarajevo, 1941-1945, Muslims, Christians, and Jews uh, in Hitler's Europe, uh, which is, again, not a book about the Holocaust, as it were, right? So it's, not, it's really not books that you might say are in Holocaust studies, right, or in Holocaust studies. It's, it's books in modern European history. Right. Um, And again, what happens to Jews in Sarajevo, which is not the focus of the book, I have to say, it's not the or definitely not the only focus of the book. Right. Is within a broader view of this complex city, this complex multi-ethnic and multi-religious city of Sarajevo and what happens to it during World War II, right? When the former state of Yugoslavia disintegrates, when we have the uh, uh, Ustasha Croat uh, rule, uh, uh, what happens to the social fabric uh, um, uh, and what happens to Jews within this broader frame? Right? So I, it's important to mention uh, um, uh, these kinds of books uh, that uh, were very influential as I was 
doing my PhD and writing uh, uh, my books. And I also have to say there's a, another comment to add here about this, which is important, I think, is that uh, local and regional studies, these kinds of in-depth studies that then open a window also to broader issues, right? Uh, the small scale that helps us to think uh, about larger questions and issues. I think there is a tendency that we can trace here, and it's interesting to think about the field, that it's a lot of women do the scholarship, right? Uh, and, and I think there's a tendency, there was a tendency, and maybe there still is, of, of men to pursue this kind of more grand narratives, right, of kind of, you know, giving us the big picture with the big, seemingly important questions, uh, um, you know, the kind of grand narratives of the war and the Holocaust and genocide or whatever. But actually, when you look at the local and regional case studies where all the complexities come up, where actually we see a lot of destabilization of these grand narratives, which open new and really exciting questions, right, that I find happens uh, not only, but I think there's definitely a majority of uh, women scholars who do this really important and groundbreaking uh, work. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I'll have to play around with that. Um, the, the second question we always ask, and you've referred to your um, current project a couple times, maybe maybe you could say a little bit more about what that is and, and when we might see it. Yeah, so I mean, it'll, it'll take time. It's, it's only the early stages. Um, and uh, you know, uh, I call so you know I'll, I'll tell you how how I call it now, and I've talked about it in a number in a number of places. Also, using this uh, kind of tentative title, I call it self devouring memory, uh, and I'm referring to global Holocaust memory. And um, the project, uh, uh, one of the things that the project does, and that uh, I think is important, is uh, is uh, address basically address uh, a, a central problem I think that we have. I mean, we live in a world of global Holocaust memory. The Holocaust, as we know, has become a central marker in Western identity in various ways. It's become a, a global marker of memory. Right? We have a, an UN mandated uh, International Day of Remembrance on 27th of January when in 1945 Soviet forces liberated Auschwitz. Uh, we have a lot of programs, like the program we have at Stockton in Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Uh, uh, we have international institutes that deal with Holocaust memory and education. Of course, Yad Vashem, the USHMM in Washington, but other uh, various international organizations that deal with uh, Holocaust memory. So Holocaust, global Holocaust memory is, is a major uh, and, and quite well-funded uh, uh, endeavor. And it's important. Uh, it's very important. But there's also a paradox within it because we now start to see uh, a number of ways in which from within this institutional framework of Holocaust memory, we start to see various kinds of even cases of distortion of Holocaust uh, history. And one of the prime, I mean, we have two Two examples of this kind of ongoing affair now with Hungary on the one hand and with Poland, uh, uh, um, uh, states that are committed to institutions of Holocaust memory that engage in Holocaust memory, but are actually now advancing uh, a distortionist view of Holocaust history from the standpoint of nationalist perspectives, right? So the the role of the state here is still central, right? Um, And uh, that's one thing. But we also have, um, when I say distortionist view, again, 
the idea is that we're talking about a history of Nazism. We're talking about Nazi occupation. We're talking about Nazi mass murder. This has nothing to do with the Hungarian state. This has nothing to do with the Hungarians. This has nothing to do with Poles, right? Uh, and and in Poland, we even have, as in other places, also in Ukraine, uh, memory laws, right? What what now the state says that you can and cannot say about this history, right? So legal distortions of this history as well. Um, uh, again, within the frame of actually Holocaust memory. So that's the problem here. This is happening at the same time and by states that take an active role in institutions of Holocaust memory, right? So it's within this kind of thing. And the the other element is various kinds of paradoxes and absurdities. And I think that they're in front of our eyes and we should at least point them out and, and really confront them. And I'm talking about things like uh, uh, the Philippine um, head of state, Duarte, as we've all as we've all seen, comparing himself favorably to Hitler, right? We've all seen this and it's out there on YouTube, uh, talking about his vision of murdering millions of people, like Hitler murdered millions of Jews, uh, and then afterwards finding himself visiting in Israel, uh, um, ostensibly as as uh, there is some evidence for to close an arms deal. Um, uh, but as all certain dignitaries uh, and above who visit Israel, he, they have to visit Yad Vashem. It's part of the diplomatic protocol. And so he goes to visit Yad Vashem. So we have basically a mass murderer, right, who talks explicitly about his vision of mass murder, who actually compares himself to Hitler favorably and then visit, visits a major global institute of Holocaust memory. That that's uh, and, and I'm not even talking about the context, right, of the of the ostensible arm, arms deal here in the background. Even without that, that's an unbearable thing. We need to talk about it, right? It needs actually to be at the center of how we think about this because something has gone terribly wrong, right? If we are in this situation where someone like Duarte or Viktor Orban, the head of the Hungarian state today, who has led an anti-Semitic election campaign, in 2017 against George Soros, uh, can also visit Yad Vashem, right? Uh, and participate again in from within the Institute of Holocaust memory uh, in kind of advancing a distortionist view uh, of Holocaust history, then something has gone terribly wrong. We need to admit this, we need to confront this, and we need to think how we incorporate this and how we do Holocaust memory? What is Holocaust memory? How does it color our research? How do we move forward in this field? We need to acknowledge that we are in a state of crisis in Holocaust and genocide studies. And that's kind of the heart of my current project. Well, I will leave us with that cliffhanger um, and just say that I hope that when you're done with the project, you'll come back and visit with us on New Books and Genocide Studies. But until then, uh, it's a fascinating book. I encourage the listeners to go go read it. Uh, it's Genocide in the Carpathians, War, Social Breakdown, and Mass Violence, 1914-1945. So thank you very much for talking about it, Waz. Thank you, Kelly, for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure, and I, you know, I look forward uh, at some point in the future to talk again. Wonderful. All right, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Waz Segal about his new book, Genocide in the Carpathians, War, Social Breakdown, and Mass Violence, 1914-1945. to 
If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers, or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when we'll conclude our short series of podcasts on the mass violence in Indonesia with a discussion with Vanessa Hearman about her new book, Unmarked Graves, Death and Survival in the Anti-Communist Violence in East Java. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.